You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. The big news domestically this week were the big inflation numbers announced, uh, an 8.5% spike between March 2021 and March 2022, the highest in more than 40 years. Here to dive into the numbers is Washington Post economics editor, Damian Paletta. Damian, welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me. All right. So the, the rise in these inflation numbers has been persistent since late last year. What's behind them? Well, you know, it was supposed to be getting better by this point. Last year, there was huge supply chain problems. We were kind of, we thought, emerging from the pandemic. And everyone was, you know, buying things and they had all this money to spend. Things are supposed to be getting better this year. But the, you know, really the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine gave inflation another shot in the arm. And we saw that in the data that came out this week. You know, fuel prices are surging and the price of food is also up dramatically. And so those two things really helped push inflation up. Some of the things that were big inflationary pressures last year, like used car prices, they're actually starting to retreat. But I think when you have these core parts of, you know, the American disposable income, which is gas and food pushing things up, Americans are going to continue feeling the pain. And we don't really see any end inside. I mean, gas prices have stopped going up, but they're hovering, you know, around four dollars a gallon in many parts of the country. And we're heading into summer driving season. And that's just going to add a ton more cost to, you know, really millions of American households. Well, let's talk more about about energy prices, because as you said, they are the, the biggest culprit here. Um, talk more about the impact of Russia's invasion on Ukraine on those energy prices. Sure. So Russia is the third largest producer of oil. And even though the United States doesn't purchase a lot of oil from Russia, and, and in fact, the Biden administration has imposed a policy where we shouldn't be buying any oil from them, it just depletes the global supply when Russia, you know, is being kind of quarantined by a number of different countries at once, they still do sell energy to Europe. And I know the Europeans now are considering essentially cutting them off as a way to try to, um, you know, cut off Russia's money. But in doing that, it just depletes the supply of oil even more. So it's almost in a way like kind of a simple economics equation. When you have less supply and as much or more demand, the price is going to go up. And the price, unfortunately, gets passed along to consumers. And like I mentioned, as we're heading into that season of everyone jumping in their cars to go to the beach or go visit grandma in the summer, those costs really pile up on American households. I think, you know, we saw data that showed a lot of Americans last year were buying, you know, the kind of the SUV boom is back and uh, Americans mm. were kind of getting away from those more fuel efficient cars. And so now they're, they're kind of paying the price twice for that. Let me keep you on the on the, the subject of Ukraine simply because the big news that's coming out of Europe, and this is related to energy, is that Europe is considering an oil embargo of, of, of Russia. What impact would that have on the global economy? The, the significance of a move like that by Europe? Yeah, yeah, it would be it's a fascinating um, move if they do it because it would really hurt Russia. I mean, Russia still gets a tremendous amount of revenue from selling energy to Europe. You know, countries like Germany and other parts of Europe really get, you know, I think 50 or more percent of their energy from Russia. So it would have a tremendous impact on Russia's ability to finance the war. At the same time, it would be really hard for these European countries to replace the energy that they were buying from Russia. So that could 
unfortunately drive up prices even more on the United States because there might be even less supply to go around and the Europeans might be shopping for the same oil that we're trying to get our hands on to keep prices down here. So, you know, it's a, I think we can all see where the Europeans are coming from. They feel like what they've done hasn't been enough and they need to do more. But this is a, a bridge that they've been kind of reluctant to cross and it seems like they're getting closer to it. And so this could, you know, add to even more inflationary pressures on the United States as we get into the summer. Okay, so let's keep talking about about inflation, because I think I remember seeing a stat that while year over year inflation is the highest it's been in 40 years, the increase from February 2022 to March 2022 has been decreasing, that the rate of inflation has been decreasing. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, you did. I mean, there is like a, a silver lining in this report that just came out. You're right. I mean, aside, if you put the gas prices to the side, um, it does look like it's called core inflation. Other parts of that report are showing things starting to level off. And so, you know, obviously the gas price thing is this chaotic event that is coming out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Once that potentially resolves itself in terms of the energy supply, we might be in a place where other costs are leveling off and stabilizing. And that will have inflation kind of normalized, which is what we've been expecting would happen by now anyway. So I think we're all watching that closely. I mean, politically, that's kind of a tricky argument for the White House to say, you know, if you just take out gas and food, it's not so bad. Um, But I think it's something we're all watching, especially as we get closer to the summer, if things start to level out, it might make this a little bit less of a political liability for the Biden administration. So then um, I was going to ask the question, so what can the president do about it? But I'm going to push that aside because technically the president doesn't have any real control over the economy. But the people who do, it's the Federal Reserve. So what's what's the Federal Reserve strategy uh, of getting inflation under control? It's a great question. I mean, so they have begun raising interest rates. And the point of that is to try to cool off the economy. And it's, it's a really tricky um, thing they're trying to do. They're trying to cool off the economy without tanking the economy. Yeah. You know, we already saw this week, mortgage rates have risen above, risen above 5% for the first time since 2011. And uh, they, there's a signs that Americans are starting to pump the brakes on their spending. Now, that could be a good thing because when Americans, you know, ease off on spending, it can get inflation down. Um, mortgage rates above 5%, you know, I think that's, you know, kind of eye-opening. If it keeps going up and we get to 6 and 7%, that's going to really, I mean, obviously now I think it's already really cha- changing how people uh, are approaching home buying. So consumer behavior is changing. It's going to change even more. The Fed is going to keep raising interest rates, maybe even more aggressively than we thought. Whether they get that balance right and like perfectly land the parachute, it's unclear. It's really hard, but there's a chance, you know, we hope it doesn't happen, but there's a chance that they do this in a way that doesn't get us quite into the balance we need, and we end up in a recession, you know, 12 months or so from now. Damien, that's a perfect segue to the question I was going to ask, which is what's the likelihood of the United States slipping into a recession later this year or early next year? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I, I think I'd be a really rich person who wasn't in the journalism <laughs> business. But uh, I mean, I think that, I think there's a decent chance. I mean, anytime that you have an adjustment, anytime they kind of turn the knobs on policy, you have a chance that they overcorrect. I mean, when you and when you have wild cards like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Energy prices, if mortgage rates keep going up seven, eight percent, and people just stop buying homes, people stop buying cars, people stop going on vacation. 
suddenly you have a recession. I mean, I think the good news is we're adding 400,000 new jobs a month. That's I mean, the labor market is hot right now. And that's a really good sign. People have jobs. They can, you know, withstand this economy. If people, if companies start cutting back and laying people off, that's when you should start to get more worried about a recession. And we're not seeing anything like that yet. Wow. As always, Damien Poletta, Washington Post economics editor. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks so much. I'm going to continue the conversation with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Eugene Robinson and George Will. Welcome back to First Look. Glad to be with Good you. Good to be here, Jonathan. All right. So this is uh, for I want both of you to answer this question. I didn't ask it of Damien. So I mean, I'm going to ask it of, of both of you, and I'll start with you, George. How much influence does the president of the United States have over the American economy? The American economy is hundreds of millions of people making billions of decisions every day, and the answer is very little. And the also should be said that's a good thing. The last thing we want is an economy driven about by the gusts of opinion, political needs of of office holders. Uh, Eugene? Uh, well, uh, George is basically right. George and I both remember a time when presidents thought they had more control of the economy and they imposed wage and price controls, for example. Was Richard Nixon the last president to do that? It, it did happen in our lifetimes. So, um, but obviously nothing like that is going to happen now. Um, the whole political attitude toward the economy has become much more laissez-faire than it was before. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of economic growth. So, um, you know, it's mm -hmm. not much the president can do. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to admit to something that I, I, economy wasn't the word I should have used. It was reducing inflation. So how much, <laughs> so if your answer, if your answer doesn't change, um, because I've changed it from how much control does the president have over the economy to how much could, how much control does the president have over reducing inflation? If your answer changes, raise your hand and I'll give you a chance to explain. Otherwise, I'll move on. I'll, Let me raise oh, my hand. Oh, George. Go ahead. <laughs> the, the president had a chance to uh, make a statement about what causes inflation and therefore to make a step toward curing inflation that he didn't take when he reappointed Jay Powell to be head of the Fed. Now, if Jay, Jay Powell's tenure at the Fed can be called a success, what would failure look like? I mean, we have this astonishing inflation, except we shouldn't be astonished because those of us who sit at the feet, as it were, of Milton Friedman know that Friedman was right when he said that inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomenon. And when you produce trillions and trillions of new dollars chasing fewer and fewer goods relative to the number of, of uh, dollars chasing it, you get inflation. Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, former whiz kid at Harvard, et cetera, et cetera, has been much praised for predicting what to some of us didn't require predicting. That is, in the last three or four years. Well, uh, let me say one thing about that, um, which is that the Fed has um, two jobs to do, and one is controlling inflation, and the other is promoting full employment. Uh, and so um, uh, look at the 
jobs market. Um, you can't look at the at the Fed's um, uh, responsibilities, the Fed's duty, I think, and say that uh, Jay Powell has been a, has been a failure. Um, uh, we've got full employment. Unemployment is 3.6% or something like that. Uh, and inflation is higher than we would like it, much higher than the Biden administration and Democrats would like it to be. Um, but, uh, it, you know, you, you could argue that Jay Powell, in fact, has done quite a good job. Here's the problem of the argument, Gene, however, is this. Uh, it is, I think, axiomatic that the best anti-poverty program, the best egalitarian policy is a tight job market. So while you're quite right, we, have, we are below what used to be considered full employment. The problem is that uh, as the tight labor market causes wages to increase, the increase is more than nullified by the inflation that, that is devaluing paychecks. Okay, this part of the economics seminar is over. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, I, uh, uh, George, um, going to stick to, uh, well, I'm going to stick to the economy, but now we're going to talk about gas prices because the president has said repeatedly he's doing everything in his power to reduce the cost of gasoline. Is he? Well, yeah, again, we're back to what are the powers of a president? Now, they're a little greater than this. It's absolutely hilarious to watch what's happened. We had years, decades, really, of overheated rhetoric about climate change, about it's an existential threat that is a threat to life on the planet. The, cost of, the price of gasoline goes up and suddenly that's a lot less important. You'd have thought nothing could be more important than an existential threat, but turns out that's a lot less important than unhappy motorists standing by the pump watching those numbers spin. Uh, and saying, we'll, we'll get to the existential crisis after we get the price of gasoline down. Uh, so th there's a great moment of cognitive dissonance here as as the, the overheated rhetoric meets overheated drivers at the gas pump. Gene, overheated rhetoric fearing for the, the existence of the planet? No, I don't think the rhetoric was overheated, although the planet is becoming overheated, but the rhetoric was uh, quite reasonable. This is a case of the urgent um, having to take precedence over the important um, and we have the uh, President Biden has to rally uh, the American people and Europeans and um, uh, and and people around the world, uh, really, in this fight against Russian aggression in U Ukraine, and I think has done a magnificent job of it. One of the side effects is um, that we have this this crisis in oil and gas prices, and in order to bring people along, um, he's uh, he's going to have to do what he can. Now, what can he do? Not as not as much as he would like to be able to do. He's releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that will have some impact, but not a lot, um, uh, and accelerate uh, the transition to clean energy, um, which should uh, should be higher on our list of things to do, George, rather than lower. We're going to bring well, up I, another. Go ahead, George. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I've, I've exhausted that. <laughs> <laughs> well, George, well, George, get ready, because this question is, is for you. Monday is officially tax day. Are Americans under tax or overtaxed? Well, 
to me, uh, the interesting thing here is that, of course, they're undertaxed in the sense that they they do not want a revenue stream commensurate with their appetites for entitlement programs. Uh, given that, that uh, in that sense, they're undertaxed. So, but from Elizabeth Warren on the left to Ted Cruz on the right, the political class is much more united by class interest than it is divided by ideology. And the class interest of the political class is to always respond to its permanent powerful incentive to run large deficits, to give the American people a dollar's worth of government, charge them 75 cents for it. The public is happy, the political class is happy. Uh, the unhappy people aren't born yet because they're, they're the unconsenting future generations that get to pick up the bill for our current consumption of goods and services. So uh, that's in, in that sense, of course they're under tax, but uh, no, no one believes that. <laughs> Eugene? Uh, well, George has certainly has a point. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, get into a debate that's way over my head about modern modern monetary theory and, and whether um, deficits are actually um, stealthily a good thing rather than a bad thing, um, which some people claim. But um, uh, but it, it, the point is well taken. Um, we are we, we spend a lot. We add to the accumulated debt uh, and um, uh, at least by <laughs> traditional economic um, standards or theory uh, someday there's a reckoning modern theorists say maybe not let's uh, switch our attention switch. to russia yeah. russia and ukraine um, Eugene, uh, the president caused a stir this week when he um, said that russia is committing quote genocide and he got a, he, he got some pushback from a broad spectrum of people, including the uh, French President Macron. Is President Biden right, though? Well, uh, look, in, in, the, in the sense that um, I, I would use the term as a journalist, um, we would use it in, in conversation and discussion what's going on. I think it's clearly, clearly right uh, in, in the legal sense of, you know, in the, the you know, Hague tribunal sense. Um, uh, it, it, I, I think President Biden added that that is for the lawyers to parse. Um, but it does sort of, you know, cross a, um, a, a line uh, and, and uh, it, it's hard to step back from that once you've said that um, Vladimir Putin is committing genocide, then it's hard uh, to to see how you then uh, sit down with him and, for example, work out some sort of compromise settlement to 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 this conflict that he started. You know, G George, um, <clears throat> excuse me. With Sweden and Finland now actively talking about joining NATO, um, Russia's warning that such a move, <clears throat> excuse me. Is it, Anybody else suffering from allergies? Because this, this is driving me crazy. I, apo I apologize. Um, but Russia's warning that if Sweden and Finland jo join NATO, that they're going to increase their defense posture, including stationing nukes uh, in, the, in the Baltic area. How seriously should we take Putin's latest threat? Well, the alternative, uh, that is to... Uh, encouraging Sweden and Finland to join NATO is to allow de facto Putin to diminish the sovereignty of both nations by having exercising a veto by implicit threat over their 
choice of defense posture and their choice of relations with other nations. Uh, it seems to me uh, Mr. Putin has a hard time at this point saying, do what I say or I'll behave badly. Well, he's already behaving badly. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely, George, George is absolutely right. And look at Finland, <laughs> Finland, which, um, which you know, sort of prided itself on being the sort of, sort of way station between NATO and Russia and its neutrality that was central to its identity. And Finland's like, no, nah, we're, we're, we're going with NATO. We're going with NATO. This guy's crazy. Finland, of course, had, had an experience. They had the, the Winter War of 1940, where for a while they were like Ukraine. They were surprisingly tough for the Ukrainian Soviet forces. Uh, they've been there before, and they have, have a, a, a very uh, flinty, realistic view of the fact that they live in a dangerous neighborhood. Well, let, let's keep talking about um, um, about Ukraine and just their their ability to hang in there uh, almost two months after Russia invaded. President Biden spoke with uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky yet, uh, this week, pledging another $800 million in military aid. And, you know, we are now waking up to the news that not only was that Russian warship um, struck, but now it has sunk a flagship uh, warship in in the Russian military, as the as Russia shifts its its focus in the in its battle plans to the east, can Ukraine continue to withstand or even push back uh, the Russian onslaught in t terrain that military strategists say is more advantageous to the Russians, Eugene? Well, look, I think uh, as, as I try to synthesize what the military experts are saying, if, if Russia, if the Russian army performs the way it should in massing force and, and concentrating it and using it effectively in the east, then the Russians have a huge advantage. Uh, the problem is, you know, the Russian forces have not performed uh, anywhere near the way they should throughout this conflict. So um, I'm not sure we should expect um, that, that all of a sudden that's going to change. Mm -hmm. George, what's your view? Uh, I, I think one of the lessons of this is that there are asymmetries in war at all times. And it turns out things like our javelin anti-tank weapons can nullify very cheaply very complex, very expensive, very unwieldy weapons uh, of the sort that the Russians were counting on to propel them to swift victory. Uh, I think there's a constant recalibration by the Biden administration, which I think has performed brilliantly during this crisis. And what they want to do is, is prolong the war uh, without, it, 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 there's, I, don't, I want to say this precisely, that, they want Ukraine to win, but not too much. That is not to, to uh, not to trigger uh, Putin into doing something really dangerous, such as using chemical weapons or a tactical nuclear weapon. So the, the, we've gone from, gosh, trying to save Ukraine from being swiftly overrun to calibrating Ukraine's semi-military victory, which is a, which is a lovely problem to have, frankly. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great way to 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 look at this. You know, Eugene, one of the things to continue on Putin and and his threats against the West, and particularly potential use of tactical nuclear weapons. CIA Director Burns 
brought this up and holds it out there that this is something that could po possibly happen. If he does that, if Putin does that, what should the response be um, from the oh. West and from the United States in particular? Boy, I sure don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know that that obviously, you know, um, no, no nation has used uh, uh, a nuclear weapon uh, in war since 1945. So, um, uh, and, and we were the last to do it. Um, uh, I am skeptical uh, that, that Putin, uh, under almost any circumstances, is going to want to cross that line, I'm more skeptical than some people, and I, I guess I shouldn't be more skeptical than, than Bill Burns because he knows Putin as well as anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, but I, I do remain skeptical just because I, I think Putin is megalomaniacal um, and um, uh, and delusional, but not suicidal. Do you do you agree with that assessment, George? Uh, unfortunately, no, because mil Russian military doctrine has been really clear for a long time, which is that the threshold that Gene and I both want to see preserved isn't important to them, that small nuclear weapons are just small weapons to them uh, with battlefield uses. Uh, I don't know about the command and control structure, uh, that is how much is available to local commanders in the field to make choices of this momentous nature, it is worth remembering why this threshold matters. That is, one of the arguably the greatest achievement of the last uh, decade, 70 decades, is something that didn't happen. Uh, mm -hmm. the, first use, the first, the second use of nuclear weapons occurred three days after the first, and there has not been a third since then. And that's a stunning achievement uh, of, of statesmen over several generations. Once that line is is crossed, the reverberations of that are simply impossible to know, which is why we really don't want to do it. Um, I, Jonathan, no, I would quickly, quickly add one thing, yeah. which is that um, U.S. military experts uh, continue to say that they have not seen any indication of nuclear tactical nuclear arms being moved toward the front. Now, they haven't seen it yet. Obviously, they could see it. And, and uh, you know, I hope, I hope George is overly pessimistic, but, um, uh, but they haven't seen it yet. And when it comes to Vladimir Putin, we know that um, he says one thing, the Russians do another thing, and vice versa. So we, we won't know until they actually do something. Eugene Robinson, George Will, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Glad to be with you. Happy Easter. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.